You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 83, Germany Prepares for War, Part 6, The Luftwaffe. This week, a big thank you goes out to Anita, Hollis, Alexander, Peter, Gorn, and Carl for choosing to support this podcast by becoming a member. You can become a member to gain access to ad-free versions of all of the podcast episodes, plus special member-only episodes released every month. Head on over to historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash members to find out more. One of the major features of the Second World War was the influence that air power would have both on the plans developed by nations during the 1930s and then the actual events of the war after 1939. Air power had played an important role during the First World War, but it was something new at that time, and all of the changes that occurred after 1914 were at a breakneck pace as every nation tried to adjust to the realities of this new military tool that was growing and evolving all the time. During the interwar years, everybody would be allowed to take a bit of a breather and to really consider what the future of air power would be. Technology would mature, and the best ways to use that technology would be the topic of countless conversations all over the world. This entire topic will be something that we discuss in a few months, starting in episode 93, where there will be an entire series focused strictly on air power and its applications. But during this episode, I felt that we needed to discuss just a little bit about the Luftwaffe during the 1930s, to go along with our other episodes in this series. The Luftwaffe was created in 1935, and the announcement of its creation would represent a major pushback against the restrictions from the Versailles Treaty. Just like every other branch of the German military, it would have to deal with the fact that it had to rapidly expand and also adjust to the new realities of warfare as it began to expand in the last half of the 1930s. We will also be discussing how the Luftwaffe planned to fight a war and what they were planning to do to help the German military on their path to victory. One thing to keep in mind, which we discussed in previous episodes, is that the Luftwaffe would be constrained by, some, by the same material shortages as every other arm of the German military. This made their large construction programs unobtainable in the last years before the war, which meant that the Luftwaffe that entered the war in 1939 was not the one that was planned from the previous years. But with all that said, let's jump in. As I mentioned earlier, the Treaty of Versailles banned any form of German military aviation, but there were two efforts that would be used to get around this ban. The first involved Russia and the Treaty of Rapallo, 
In the years after the First World War, both Germany and Russia were sort of in the position of outcast nations, but they had relatively good relations with one another once the Russian Civil War began to wind down, and the Russian communists shifted away from their sort of policy of worldwide revolution. This allowed for close cooperation, both economically and militarily, between the two nations, something that both nations felt that they needed. In the realm of air power, this resulted in the creation of training facilities in Russia. A similar arrangement would also be made for Germany to train troops in armored combat. The German military leaders highly valued this arrangement, as it allowed them to more freely test ideas and train future combat leaders, while the Russians valued it as a way of working with and learning from German officers and also German technology. The second effort to get around these restrictions came in the form of civilian aviation during the 1920s and 30s. The German military would work closely with Lufthansa, or the airline that would be renamed to Lufthansa in 1933, and many civilian pilots employed by Lufthansa had previously trained in what were referred to as gliding clubs, where future combat pilots were trained in unpowered aircraft. During this period, there was a lot of overlap between civilian and military aviation, especially when it came to aircraft that were roughly similar to bombers. In Germany, Lufthansa would even use what would become Luftwaffe bombing aircraft. For example, the Junkers Ju-52 and the Heinkel HE-111 would both be flown by Lufthansa in the 1930s in a passenger-carrying or a freight-carrying capacity. This provided great experience for everyone involved, from the pilots to the ground crew, without running afoul of any Versailles restrictions. It also funded continued German uh, aviation developments. Then, when the first expansion plans for the Luftwaffe were put in place in 1933, they would set modest goals for expansion that then could be met by that aviation industry that had been kept going by civilian aviation needs. Now, that first expansion plan had a pretty modest goal of just 26 squadrons of aircraft, with 10 of those being bombers. Then in 1935, this was expanded to double the total number of squadrons with an even heavier weight towards bomber squadrons. Along with these expansion plans, the groundwork was rapidly laid for future expansion, with thousands of training aircraft ordered to train pilots, and the number of workers in aircraft industries quickly expanded. I reference bomber numbers because it's hard to overstate how important many nations in the 1930s felt their ability to launch bombing campaigns against an enemy was when it came to their ability to win a future conflict. There were many individuals, and they were often leaders within their nation's air forces, who believed that aerial bombing would be a quick and easy way to end the next war, without having to resort to the kind of slog that had been experienced during the First World War. In Germany, the push for the creation of a force of bombers capable of striking strategic targets was led by General Lieutenant Walter Weaver. Weaver was the chief of staff of the Luftwaffe and played a crucial role in the early armament programs, if only because he was able to work quite well with the most important individuals within the Luftwaffe, which was not always the case for everybody else. There was a lot of infighting, but he did a pretty good job of bridging those gaps. Unlike some other strategic bombing advocates in other nations, Weber did, not, did still believe that a strong fighter force was required, understanding that it was unlikely that Germany would be able to build a strategic strike force capable of destroying an enemy's bombers quickly enough to prevent retaliation. He also believed that a strategic bombing campaign should not be seen as a first strike option, 
and should only be used when it was proven that it was the only way to achieve victory. Now, if any strategic bombing campaign was going to be launched, then the Luftwaffe was going to need a bomber capable of reaching targets with large bomb loads. And during the mid-1930s, there were two bombers that were being designed for this purpose, the Dornier DO-19 and the Hunker Ju-89. Both of these would have been four-engine bombers that would have fulfilled a similar role to the more well-known American B-17 or, or the British Lancaster. The Germans were having engine problems, though, a problem that almost every four-engine bomber program had to contend with. And by June 1936, they were still not able to create an engine that was powerful enough and reliable enough to power the new bomber designs. They probably would have eventually solved these engine problems, but then in June 1936, Weber was killed in a flying accident. His death would change the course of the Luftwaffe, not because he was maybe some kind of genius or, or had some revolutionary view of air power, but instead simply because it allowed for a group of officers to come to power that held different views about how air power should be used. They were led by Albert Kesselring, who would be Weber's direct successor, and his views would shrink the horizon of how the Luftwaffe would focus its resources. Instead of creating a strategic bombing fleet, Kesselring and others believed that the Luftwaffe should focus on medium bombers that were designed to strike operational targets, with the classic example of such a target, or the one that I always use, uh, being like rail stations behind the enemy lines, things that would have a direct and immediate impact on enemy military formations. These medium bombers could be double-engine aircraft, easing the strain on Germany's engine manufacturing capabilities and allowing for more engine production capacity to be available for a variety of other aircraft that were also necessary to prepare the Luftwaffe for war. During the 1930s, there would be several different companies building different medium bombers for use by the Luftwaffe, with Heinkel, Donier, and Hunkers all given construction contracts. In early 1937, 12 aircraft of their most recent designs for each of the HE-111, the DO-17, and the Ju-86 would be sent to Spain, the first of many that would make their way eventually to Spain to participate in the Civil War. Spain would prove to be an important area where information and experience was gained both in the usage of aircraft as well as in evaluations of the aircraft and what adjustments needed to be made uh, during sort of the production run that was coming up in the future. In general, these aircraft were quite good, with the HE-111 and the D-17 considered two of the best medium bombers in the world. The HE-111 had first flown in February 1935, although that first prototype in the eventual production models had many differences, as there were many adjustments made during the testing process. The production model would have a top speed of 430 kilometers per hour, a ceiling of 6,700 meters, and an internal bomb capacity of 2,000 kilograms, although it could carry a little more if it carried them all externally, but that came with other trade-offs. Almost 100 HE-111s would see service in Spain. In Spain, it was often preferred by many squadrons over other available options. It was then planned to begin steady replacement during 1940 with a newer generation of aircraft, a process that did not occur due to the war and related production challenges. Instead, the HE-111 would go on to become a wartime workhorse for the Luftwaffe with a whole host of different variants. I generally feel that having a large number of aircraft variants, especially variants based around wildly different purposes, 
like the HE-111 would have, reflects very positively on the general aircraft design, and the HE-111 would be altered to perform everything from transporting paratroopers to launching flying bombs. But initial plans were for replacement, and specifically the Luftwaffe's medium bombers were going to be replaced by the Junker Ju-88. The Ju-88 burst onto the world stage in March 1939 when it set a new world airspeed record for its class of aircraft when it averaged 517 kilometers per hour over a 1,000 kilometer circuit. In general, the initial prototypes of the Ju-88 were thought to be sort of incredibly important to the future of the Luftwaffe, and the Luftwaffe leadership, you know, thought very highly of them. And the hope was that they could immediately be moved into mass production to be ready as quickly as possible. There would instead be several changes to the design that had to occur before the Ju-88 could be ready for that mass production, both those that were required, as was the case with any prototype, but then there were also changes that were really just sort of the Luftwaffe placing its own design requirements on, on the aircraft as it existed. The most famous part of, of what might be called meddling was that it had to have dive-bombing capabilities due to the focus that the Luftwaffe put on dive-bombing. This required, you know, stronger frames and wings and, and dive brakes and, and all kinds of small alterations, all of which reduced speed and bomb capacity. The speed and bomb capacity of the aircraft was then further reduced by the fact that the initial prototypes were completely unarmed, under the theory that they would be able to use their high top speed to just run away from any danger, an idea that would not survive into the production models. Eventually, the aircraft would lose about 65 kilometers per hour off its top speed, give or take, which still made it fast, but not as blindingly fast as the initial designs. The real issue, though, was trying to ramp up production capacity, and it meant that when the war started, the Luftwaffe would have a grand total of 12 Ju-88s in frontline squadrons for the invasion of Poland. Despite its small numbers at the start of the conflict, it would then go on to become the most, the most produced multi-engine German aircraft, with over 15,000 built before the end of the war. Medium bombers were not the only aircraft in the Luftwaffe's arsenal, and you cannot discuss the Luftwaffe without discussing the emphasis that they placed on dive bombing. The genesis of the German dive bombers would actually be in the United States, where the German pilot Ernst Dudet would tour in the early 1930s as a stunt pilot. In his travels, he would be impressed by the Curtis Hawk II, which was a fighter that the Curtis company was hoping to export to other nations, but which also had some impressive dive-bombing capabilities. Two examples of the aircraft would be purchased and brought to Germany, where Udet planned to use them in aerobatic displays. The capabilities that he was able to show in these displays would result in the creation of the Henschel HS-123, which was a combination fighter and bomber. It would then make its debut in an air show in Berlin, where Udet would fly the aircraft. Even before the Henschel was shown to the public, work was started at Hunkers on what would eventually become the Ju-87, or the Stuka, as basically everybody knows it as. The Ju-87 was able to carry a bomb and then release it from a near-vertical dive with remarkable ac accuracy. Dive bombing at this time was very attractive for one simple reason, and the, the Stuka was perhaps the best example of it, and it's because dive bombers could actually hit things. One of the primary challenges faced by bombers during the interwar period was actually hitting anything, be it ground or naval targets. 
It was just very challenging to drop bombs on a target when speed, elevation, wind conditions, and a whole host of other factors had to be taken into account. Problems that just grew larger as aircraft continued to need to fly faster and at higher altitudes. Dive bombers solved many of these problems due to the nature of the dive making it easier for the pilot to release the bomb at the proper moment and on target, with the lower elevation and angle of release reducing the factors that would cause the bomb to miss. The accuracy possible from aircraft like the Stuka allowed for a far more effective level of air support to ground operations as well, and the Stuka and other aircraft would be focused on this role by the Luftwaffe. This was a formula that was tested in Spain and would prove to be remarkably successful, and it would strengthen the already existing belief among Luftwaffe leaders that air power was capable of supporting ground operations in, in a very meaningful way. Then, during the opening campaigns of the war, one of the distinguishing factors of the German campaigns would be the effectiveness of those joint operations between the Luftwaffe and ground forces, which was in stark contrast to the coordination issues experienced by many other armies. I will also just note here that during those early campaigns, while the Stuka gets all the press, it was not the only aircraft used for such close support operations. There were large numbers of both fighters and other bombers dedicated to close air support tasks, and they just did not get all the press. While the Stuka would become synonymous with German dive bombing and, and German close support operations, when it came to fighter aircraft, that role was filled by the Messerschmitt Bf 109. The 109 would first fly in November 1936, just a month before it would make a trip to Spain. When it arrived, it was a breath of fresh air for the squadrons that it was given to, after they had been working against clearly superior Russian fighters in the months before the 109 arrived. There would be a few revisions based on the experiences in Spain, with those newer revisions also being sent to, you know, to, to test out as well. During the early campaigns of the Second World War, the strengths of the BF-109 would allow it to have a very high success rate over other air forces. One advantage that it had was speed, which would be used to devastating effect as described by Chris McNabb in his book Hitler's Eagles. He would say, quote, During the early stages of World War II, the BF-109E enjoyed a superior altitude performance to all the fighters it came up against. So the favored tactics of the Jagdwaffe was to get above their opponents and attempt to bounce them, if possible using the sun to mask their approach. After a single firing pass, the Jagdflieger would use the speed gained in their diving attack to climb back into a position from which they would, could perform any repeat attacks. With enemy fighters usually being slower and more maneuverable, German pilots tried to avoid turning dogfights wherever possible. End quote. While the aircraft was very capable, it was always seen during the 1930s as a secondary and supportive aircraft that existed primarily as a tool to facilitate open airspace for the bombers to complete their own missions. During the early stages of the war, this often manifested in removing any and all enemy aerial assets from the skies, which made close support tasks and, and other bombing tasks much easier to stage and execute. Later in the war, once enemy air forces were stronger, the German fighters played a much larger role in defensive operations over Germany. The BF-109 would eventually go on to become the most produced fighter aircraft in history, which really says something about its mid-1930s design. There were certainly better fighters during the war, many better fighters with much better capabilities, but updates and changes at least kept the 109 
close to competitive, even near the end. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Most of the mainstays of the Luftwaffe in September 1939 were all of those mid-1930s designs that had several years of design development and testing before the start of the war. There were all kinds of problems experienced by German industry in the last years before the war trying to produce them in enough numbers, though. And it kind of intersects with a lot of the topics that we discussed in the first three episodes of this series, so I won't spend too much time on them here. But specifically for the Luftwaffe, the outcome was that in 1938, the number of aircraft produced actually dropped year over year, at a time when the nations that the Luftwaffe would inevitably be facing were rapidly ramping up their own production. To give an idea of how out of touch German planning and German execution was by this stage, after the Munich Agreement was signed, Hitler wanted the Luftwaffe to expand its number by a factor of five by 1942. This was only possible if Germany was able to produce 85% of the entire world's production of aviation fuel. Otherwise, planes would have just been sitting on runways with nothing in the tanks. Oh, and it also would have cost more than the entire German rearmament spending was between 1933 and 1939. Would have been massive, totally unrealistic, completely unrealistic. Along with just the general challenges of production in Germany during this period, some decisions were made that would handicap the Luftwaffe in future campaigns. One of these was a very narrow focus on frontline strength for squadrons instead of providing the necessary number of spare parts. Spare parts required production capacity, just like the aircraft did, but shifting any production capacity from full aircraft to parts would just leave production numbers even further behind their goals. This would leave the Luftwaffe ill-prepared for long campaigns, where the endurance not just of individual pilots and aircraft would be tested, but also the entire logistical and maintenance apparatus of the Luftwaffe. These issues were not really present during the first few campaigns of the war, but they would certainly be a problem later. During the attack on Poland, the Luftwaffe would drop their first bombs of the campaign at 4.45 a.m. on September 1st. The general course of the Polish campaign is a topic too large for this episode, absolutely for sure, 
But in general, the Luftwaffe would acquit itself quite well. Not everything went perfectly, and there were instances where the heavily outnumbered Polish Air Force actually did quite well against the German attacks, especially in instances where Polish fighters were able to find unescorted German bombers. But beyond these instances, the close air support provided by the Luftwaffe would work quite well, and it would be a system that would be able to be repeated several times over the following years. The final section of this episode is almost like an appendix, because while reading Hitler's Eagles by Chris McNabb, he walks through two specific topics that I thought I would include here. I found them interesting, and and because I did, I'm putting them in the episode. I can realistically talk about anything in these episodes I want, so we're going to dive a bit into the organization of the Luftwaffe units and then the training that pilots and aircrew would receive. Of note, I've done a lot of translation of various names, commands, groups, units here. They all have German names that I would probably butcher the pronunciation of, so I've just translated them roughly for clarity. Before going through how the Luftwaffe was structured, I should note that just like in every other military arm, the number of administrative and support personnel drastically outnumbered the number of frontline combat personnel, or flight personnel, in the case of the Luftwaffe. McNabb puts the number at around 50,000 flight personnel in the Luftwaffe in 1939, out of a total number of over a million. So you can see it's, it's actually a reasonably small percentage. At the very top of the Luftwaffe was Air Force High Command, or OKL, and one step down from there were the air fleets, of which there were initially four, although later there would be an additional three to bring the number up to seven. Each air fleet had several air districts and flying corps. The air districts were built around providing administrative and logistical support in specific geographical regions, and they would be in charge of organizing airfields in those areas. The Flying Corps were then in control of operational matters and the preparation and deployment of resources. Below the Flying Corps were the combat commands of staff flights, which commanded three to four groups, each with over 30 aircraft. Groups were then broken down into Staffeln uh, of nine aircraft. Completely separating the administrative aspects within the um, air districts from the sort of operational commands in the Flying Corps made the overall structure of the Luftwaffe pretty flexible, because in theory, any combat unit could be sent to any airfield without having to worry about logistics. When they arrived in an area, they would then take control of the airfield and all of its staff, and they were considered under the combat unit's command until they left and went somewhere else. Next up, let's talk about training. The training for new flight personnel was a multi-stage process, the first of which saw the pilot candidates given basic flight theory and aeronautics training, and then they were tested on the information that they were given to check for general aptitude. This was kind of the first filter of possible candidates. Those that were found to have the aptitude required would then move on to the A school where they would get experience in some very basic flying in a dual-control aircraft with a trainer. The goal of A-School was to get the candidate prepared for solo flights, so it covered all the basic stuff, like takeoff and flight and then landing, as well as how to deal with problems like stalls. During this same time, and then afterwards, the candidates would also be given a lot of information about aviation theory, and they would learn topics like meteorology and navigation and communication and all the technical types of subjects that they would need to know as pilots. The candidates would then move on to B-School, 
where they would gain experience in much more high-performance aircraft, which would eventually just be older types of combat aircraft that had been retired. During B-School, they would gain the experience necessary to be given their pilot's license, or pilot's badge. During peacetime, it took 10 to 13 months for a candidate to progress from initial intake to gaining that license. It was at this point in the process where new pilots were generally categorized into types of aircraft that they were destined to pilot in combat. Some would move into a multi-engine training track, and others would move into a single-engine training track. For pilots that would move into multi-engine aircraft, they would go through a lengthy sea school, which was designed to teach all of the navigation and equipment skills that would be necessary for future flying, like navigation by radio direction finding. In any case, they would eventually move into training on a specific type of aircraft that they would be using during their service. The total training time for many bombing pilots was about 20 months, which meant that they had much more formal training than any other group within the Luftwaffe. When the war started, this all shifted somewhat. Much of the theoretical information provided during the later parts of A-School was truncated and instead shifted to be included in other areas. This allowed for quicker initial training, even if in general, it meant that the pilots moved into B-School without as good of a theoretical base for aviation and aeronautics. There would be additional adjustments to the process later in the war, as the need for pilots continued to increase and losses mounted. But that is kind of a story for a different day. Thank you for listening to this episode, and I hope you will join me next time as we talk quite a bit about the word Blitzkrieg, its definition, where should it be applied, is it even applicable to what Germany was doing, we'll talk a lot about it next time.